Well, welcome to Eastlake Online, and uh, we are so glad that you're here watching this at home. We also are thankful for being in phase two, this version of Eastlake, which means in addition to all of those of you who are watching at home uh, on replay, we do have also a handful of people in the theater today, everybody, <clears throat> which is exciting. Um, people who have RSVP'd for church. Remember the good old days when you would just show up with the attitude of, you're lucky to have me here. And now you like are like, please get me out of this house. I'll do anything. What? Wear a mask? I can do that. I'll be there. Um, so we are uh, thankful for that. And my how the shoe is on the other foot at this point. But if you are a guest tuning in for the very first time, you picked a great day to come check us out because today we start a brand new teaching series called Waiting for the Barbarians, which is basically a series on taking your kids hiking at Badger Mountain. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. It has to do, we're doing a, a talk on failure, uh, a series. We're going to talk for three weeks on failure because I thought... Wouldn't it be nice to talk about something that I'm good at once in a while? And so failure is where it's at. So we've all experienced failure at some point. We've all failed some classes somewhere. We've all failed some majors. Maybe you wanted to be a doctor, but then you found studying and books to be repulsive. So you had to do something called pivoting. We've all pivoted in spite of failure. We, we, we get to somewhere and we thought, you know, I could do this. I could do this. I can't. And so we use this language of pivot. Pivot, by the way, is a fancy way to sidestep the embarrassment of failure um, we, we say things like this, the plan was to blow out our sprinklers ourselves this year, but then we had to pivot, which was code for, I don't even know where my sprinkler valves are, and I didn't know that that was involved in this process, um, and so uh, we had to pivot, which is very, 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 very relevant this week for me. Anyways, uh, the plan was to save up money all year so that buying Christmas gifts wasn't a huge blow to our December budget, but then we had to pivot, didn't we? because we overestimate our financial discipline in January every year, um, and that happens. Um, or the plan was to spend the summer coming up with a plan for online school 2.0, but then, no, I'm just kidding. That's, sorry, that's too soon. I, I apologize. That's unfair. I was just making sure you're still awake. We're all with me. Everybody's good. We love our teachers. It is amazing the extent to which we go to redraw, distract from, and otherwise avoid our failures. We have done so many incredible things to uh, pull ourselves away from this, to distance ourselves from failures, to not accept it, to kind of to do it like a spin story. Well, it's not really a failure because, you know, uh, I found somebody else, you know, or, or whatever the case may be, or I was able to kind of open up other opportunities. When others talk about our failed marriages or our failed businesses or our failed careers, we categorize them as judgy. We say that's a real unfair take, and we go into the hypocritical, well, how, do, how dare you say it, because, you know, what do you have going on uh, with your life? Only we feel qualified to address our own failures, because we can control the pace in which we can introduce explanations, blame of others, uh, and alternative successes that we've had. Yes, I failed in this, but how quickly I want to introduce you to the fact that I did not fail at this. You know, I was an honor student in second grade, so therefore, this failure of my current schooling thing, uh, really doesn't equate to too much. So uh, this week, <clears throat> Quibi announced their failure as a company in ending kind of their services. And you might be sitting there going, what's Quibi? And to my response to that would be, exactly. That's the problem as to why there was a big failure. Quibi was short for Quick Bites. Basically, it was eight to 10 minute episodes uh, designed to keep your attention during those short stints of waiting for your kids to get a practice, sitting in a waiting room, or dropping the kids off at the pool. And I'll leave you open to interpret that last one however you want to do that. But 
Quibi raised $1.75 billion. That's, B, that's a billion with a B, guys. $1.75 billion as a company, mostly because it had the backing of former DreamWorks uh, executive Jeffrey Katzenberg and former CEO of HP and eBay, uh, Meg Whitman, at the helm. Um, it was designed to be on your phone, so in those in-between moments, and they had this like weird turnstile thing where you could kind of shift it and it would work and it, would, it looked good or whatever. They recruited stars like Liam Hemsworth, Reese Witherspoon, Chrissy Teigen, and LeBron James to all-star in their own shows, and 4.5 million people downloaded the Quibi app to their phones when they were offering the free 90-day trial. Unfortunately, 92% of you canceled after that 90-day 90, <laughs> 90 trial, uh, which l- left only 72 thousand total subscribers at the initial launch, which was far below expectations. It was, no matter where you get your news or what angle you get it from, an unmitigated disaster, the kind that they make documentaries about a few years later with a trailer that ends with, and then it all came crashing down, right? That's the story uh, of Quibi. And we're in the phase right now. So they announced this this last week. And right now, uh, the phase that we're in is where those who were involved are now trying to distance themselves from it in the eyes of the public. And we do the same thing in, in the midst of our failures, too. And uh, if we can't distance ourselves from the organization as a whole, at the very least, we distance ourselves from the department that is clearly to blame on whatever things happen. Well, I was just in marketing. Um, it's those idiots over in customer service. Or we, we'd say things like, oh, I'm just a sales rep. I'm as far away from the decision-making table uh, as anybody. Or to include it in more personal lives, you know, or whatever. Um, well, she's the one who filed for divorce. Right? She filed the papers. I, I wanted to make it work, right? So we distance ourselves from failure, or we are quick to integrate other kind of alternatives and interpretations um, spins. And the reason why is because we suck at failing. We suck at failing. Uh, We suck at failure in general. And unfortunately, in life, failure is this inevitable piece that we have been taught, I think, as Americans intrinsically, like, don't fail. Do anything but fail, right? Maybe you had a parent, a dad, who had those kind of expectations for you, or you were raised in a home where if, if there's a failure, you sweep it under the rug, you spin it, you, you do everything you can to distance yourself from it, you're quick to kind of bring in all these other things. We have a general script in mind about how our life is supposed to play out, and any deviance to that requires us to paint the roses red or at least opt for plausible deniability. We paint the roses red. We say, no, nah, it's not a failure. Actually, if you look at it in this way, it kind of is a success, uh, or at least we opt for a plausible deniability. The Jewish people in Jesus' day lived with some selected wisdom texts that had been handed down from generation to generation. Essentially for them, they would be... Um, um, parts of their holy scripture that they would say, this is the wisdom of the ages. If we've learned anything over the years, it's basically this. And so read this as a child. This would be kind of take-home curriculum. The, the book of Proverbs was uh, a lot of times very much a parent, raise your kids in this way, make sure that they know this. And another uh, version of it is this book on Ecclesiastes, which is, I, I've always called it the most millennial book uh, in the Bible. Um, and in it, in this kind of wisdom text, uh, there's this, uh, this kind of terminology, because when you have Proverbs, Proverbs is a lot of times about money, relationships, and character issues, um, but then you have this Ecclesiastes text, which is uh, from an author who claimed to have it all, all of those things in life that you've ever wanted, the money, the fame, the success, the everything, the name, whatever, the reputation, and yet when you have it all, when you have everything that you've ever wanted and you're still left wanting, it makes you realize something, Right? So very much 
a in touch with his kind of side of, of this emotional, what do I do when I have everything I want? And it's still not enough. And it's still like, I'm, I still feel like I'm chasing. I got it. I said, this, my life's going to be complete as soon as I get it. And then I got it. And then it's still not complete. So what do I do with that? Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one, really famous text. Uh, a lot of times read at funerals and, and uh, just one that would stand out in general. But uh, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the suns or under the heavens. A time to be born, a time to die. A time, there's like a song that goes with this too. I was trying to figure the song out this week and I couldn't do it. it wasn't help, Spotify wasn't helping, but anyways. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. Uh, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather. Let me explain this one real quick. Um, in, in Old Testament, kind of, uh, when you read through like the Exodus and the, and the, the departure from uh, Egypt and into the Promised Land and even then from Israel beyond, they would then construct these little altars of stones. And they would say, do this so that when you walk your kids by these at later dates, they would say, hey, Dad, what's this pile of stones for? And you could tell them the story about how God came through, Yahweh God came through in a giant way. So it's all about this idea of remembering and forgetting. So here, it's, there's a time to forget and a time to remember, right? So that's kind of what the language is in there. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, maybe because of social pandemic. I don't know. Who knows? A time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. In, in other words, the summary big thing of this thing is this every idea that everything has a season. Everything is good for a time, and then a time comes when it's best to probably let it go or watch it fail or whatever. Yet how often we hang on to these, perhaps because we're so uh, obsessed with not failing. If it, the inevitability of life is, at some point, things failing, and we're so anti-things failing, then how, do we, how does this kind of text come to us and, and is presented to us like, hey, there's going to come a time to kind of let these things go, but we don't want to let things go, right? We like are hanging on until the bitter end. We keep things, uh, we, we are proud. Are we not proud when somebody goes, hey, you've had that car for a while? And with the smile, you can say, I put 100,000 miles on this thing, right? I used to have this... Um, uh, what, what was it? Uh, my last car was a Nissan 200SX. It had 250,000 miles on it when I got rid of it. I bought it with 50,000. And with pride, they'd say, that's kind of a small car, not really a great car for a guy with four kids. I'd be like, I know, but guess what? Put 150,000 miles on this thing, right? <laughs> and and uh, it gets 40 miles to the gallon. And that for me was, I, when I sold it, uh, you know, there, there's, there's no reason to do any repairs on this car. It was so old you know, it was like, it, it, the next thing that breaks, it's total. That's, that's how this thing works. And yet there was a sense of pride in not letting it fail, right? We're just like, this is, this is great. This is what we want to kind of do. <clears throat> it, and, and this is true as kind of we kind of ingrain this into kind of even our everyday activity. It wasn't long ago when our food staples and our human diets centered around things that were like in season. You would only eat things that were in season, now, Costco has strawberries in February, you guys. Now, granted, they're not very good strawberries, but they still have strawberries in February. Uh, and, because, and don't tell me I can't have strawberries in February. Gosh darn it, I'm an American. I can get whatever I want, however I want it, and whenever I want it, right? And we hang on to these things, and we don't appreciate the kind of seasonality of them. 
when we drive home, a lot of times, my wife and I, from like some sort of a vacation, there is a nostalgic thing in me to reminisce the day that we arrived and all of the fun things that we got to do and to like bemoan the time that we're now leaving and going back to reality. And in my mind, I'll say things like, just, man, just like one more. What if we could just do it for like one more day? I always wish it was one day longer. And I'll say it to Kyle, we should stay one more day. And then she smiles at me and she'd say, you have four kids. And I always think, funny how they're always my kids in this scenario, right? <laughs> the pronoun that you just used there clearly indicates that those are my kids. Augustine, St. Augustine, um, had a lot to say about this. He called them disordered loves. We don't love things for what they are. Sometimes, a lot of times, our human nature loves them too much. On a love-worthiness scale, which is something that I made up, by the way. This is my interpretation. Probably not great, but whatever. Um, We treat fours like they're sevens. We treat things that should be loved by us in like a four, and we treat it like a seven, and we love it too much. We overweight things. We make them heavier than they really are, and then the thought of losing them crushes us. And in reality, we should be like, it's not a big deal that that's being let go. It's not a big deal that you have to go home from vacation. You can't have strawberries in, in February. And yet, I like, it just it overwhelms us because we don't like this idea of failure. And we don't appreciate and understand the seasonality of things. And as a result, we have this obsession with anti-failure. Towards the end of his time with his disciples, Jesus um, let them in on a little bit of a secret. And this is, again, towards... Um, the secret was that this is like towards the end of my time with you, right? So he, he's, he's brought them into Jerusalem. He's done this whole um, entrance on a donkey and, and everybody's screaming Hosanna. And, and this, they've gone viral, essentially. This is the essence of them having gone viral and uh, at the height of their popularity. And Jesus knows the time is short and his disciples know nothing about this. Um, Jesus was truly shaking up the religious system that was so familiar to these disciples, and they got to be a part of it. And this was great for them. People, people with social capital, people with names and reputations are coming up to these disciples, these no-name fishermen from just a few years back. And they're looking at them, and they're coming to them, asking them if they'll put in a good word for them for Jesus to see if if he'll spend time with them. Imagine that feeling that they have in this moment. I've got people who for my entire life have been up here in terms of I've always looked up to them and if, you know, if they walk on the street, I'm supposed to defer to them or I'm supposed to do this. And now they're coming to me asking me if I'll talk to my buddy Jesus, right? Our modern day equivalent is whenever you've got somebody who's kind of of high importance and you've got their number and your cell phone, you're like, I could call them whenever I want, right? He's a senator, you know what I mean? Or he's a representative or he's, a, he's the boss. He owns this business. Well, how cool is that, Right? Um, it was amazing to see like th- that kind of take place. I remember uh, I've, I've mentioned this before, but when we when I was on staff at East Lake in Bothell, um, Matt Hasselbeck attended our church over there, and I could log into our kind of like computer system, like our our little thing, and I could see his cell phone number. I was like, I have access to Matt Hasselbeck's number now. I never did anything with it, nor should I have. That would have been an invasion of privacy. But it felt like a sense of power of even having it. You know what I mean? Just for a moment. It's just weird how that translates over now. Uh, Verse 20 uh, of John chapter 12 says this, there were some Greeks among them who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus what it must have felt like to have access to them, right? Verse 23, then Jesus replied to them, the hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. John would be writing about this, by the way, ipso facto, so, so many, many years after this had already taken place. He's writing this as an old man. We've talked about that before. Um, we're kind of reflecting in his own memoir about his life in the time of Jesus. Um, and so as he's, as he's writing this and reflecting on this, he's realizing that Jesus has been kind of depositing little clues about what's about to take place, even though they weren't catching on to it. And so he's talking about this time, like things are about to shift. Um, the Son of Man is about to be glorified. Even the, the title, the Son of Man, if Jesus used it in those words, they wouldn't even know. They wouldn't, at that point, probably have equated that to Jesus. Um, they would have, have said something different, maybe about an incoming Messiah. Jesus is kind of shaking things up and new things are happening or whatever. <clears throat> Very truly, I tell you, and then he goes into this life principle. Uh, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Really cool agricultural wisdom, Jesus. Thank you very much for that, right? Like we know how seeds work. <laughs> We've seen this. We understand this. And obviously he's tying this into himself. He's like, there's a time coming, right? You, you, you have enjoyed this. You now have access to somebody who's shaking up the religious system. Um, you have... Um, uh, all of these things positively going for you. And you really feel like you're making progress in this way. The window, but the window is closing and a new one is coming. Something or someone must die so that something new can take its place. I know this has been really, really great for you. But just so you know, this is going away. This season is about to be over. And I know you're not going to like that. Like, you're not going to understand it. And in fact, you're probably going to do everything within your power to stop it from happening which is evident later on when Jesus is talking, having a conversation with Peter and, and, and he says something a, a little bit more straightforward about how things are going to happen. Peter, you don't even know what's going to happen. And then he says, Peter defends him. He says, I, Lord, I will never let that happen to you, right? And he draws, it's like he draws his sword. He's like, if they're coming for you, we'll fight to the death, man. You got, I got your back, no problem. I promise you that nothing will happen to you. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he, basically, and he says, get behind me, Satan. But he's going, there, there, Peter. Like, you don't even know what you're talking about. Like, you have no idea what you're talking about in this way. And there are two parts to their defense of Jesus approaching the saying, a season is closing so that a new season can become. And they're going, no, 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 we don't want that to happen. One is obviously probably selfish. Like, if you're a skeptic and you're not really a, a Christian, and, um, or, or you're just like, you just approach everything about scripture with a, with a certain sort of skepticism. You can understand the selfishness of these are fishermen who now have other people coming to them, asking them because they have access to Jesus, not wanting to lose that. Out of self-preservation for kind of position or whatever, positional authority, um, I get it that they don't want to lose that. Um, so that's a piece of it in play, or, or that could be how you take it. But the other piece of it too is I think... Um, and probably because I'm probably more generous with the disciples than maybe an outsider who's coming in, approaching this with skepticism, I think that they're doing this out of a sense of religious fervor. Like, we will not let this happen out of conviction for what we believe in. They genuinely believed in the mission and the work of Jesus. And if you've ever been fully committed to something and have a religious fervor about it, and then to watch it close, it can almost feel like... Um, like I'm giving up, or like I'm failing God at something. If you've ever done something or held on to something and the window's closing and you loved it and it was for you kind of a spiritual thing, um, and then it goes away, there's something inside of us that goes, I can't let that happen. I've got to have more faith, or I've got to try harder, or I don't want to let God down, or I don't, I don't want to whatever. This is the equation that he's 
doing this. And really, from our perspective of it now, looking back, and John would have this perspective now going, how immature of us <laughs> to think uh, in this way. The best thing that could have happened to us is Jesus' death, resurrection, and then the commissioning of the church. How silly for us to be like, no, 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 no. Stay alive longer. We got this. We'll defend you, right? <clears throat> Which leads me, and hopefully all of us, to these difficult internal questions to wrestle with. What am I holding on to where the season has sort of run its course? Am I so intrinsically influenced by a culture that's so anti-failure, am I holding on to something that has lost its course? And I, I might be doing that of self-defense because I don't know what the future would look like without it. And I'm, I might even attach like religious explanations to it for me. This is a religious conviction. Number two, what am I holding on to with a religious conviction that I refuse to let fail? What am I holding on to with a religious conviction that I refuse to let fail? Or another way of wording it for me is, do I trust in a God big enough to tell me, there, there, Brent, you don't even know what you're talking about, right? I don't want to fail because I don't want to give you a bad name. And he's like, am I big enough for you? Am I big enough for you to let this thing fail and trust that a better season is coming in this way? And finally, in spite of the fact that I've been implicitly trained to avoid failure at all costs, which is what we talked about at the very beginning of this talk, where would it be to my benefit, perhaps, to let something fail? Where would it be to my personal benefit? And if, you're, if this is all practical standpoint, then this is a, if this was a business thing and, and whatever, and this was more like a Tony Robbins talk or whatever, then this would be a big thing. Like, you need to fail at some things, right, to be able to go uh, and, and do better. And that, I, I get it. I understand that. Um, I, I think that that's kind of a piece of it, but there's, there's a deeper thing that goes on here. But that's definitely true for us. Is there something that you're holding on to, that we hold on to? that is like, should be failing. This is an interesting time right now with this pandemic and, oh my gosh, the financial troubles and everything. And, and uh, shops here at the Uptown are, are deciding to close. And, and not all of them, but like some of them, right? And then, but the, the, there's like something in you that goes, yeah, yeah, probably should have closed. And I'm not trying to be insensitive to them, but like, do we hang on to something? It's been, it's been struggling. It's been this. The, the, uh, the retail market has moved on. Amazon's too big, blah, 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 blah. All these things... Like, how many times has there been something that's like, this is maybe a blessing in disguise that some of these things are happening, and the fact that I've been trying to hold on to it, maybe it's because I've been intrinsically trained to avoid failure at all costs. Perhaps it is to my benefit that something uh, like this is happening. And I wish I knew the answer for myself, like what I need to let go and what I need to fight for. I wish I knew the answer for you. I, I, I don't know what it is that you're holding on to that would actually probably be better for you to let go of. There's an advertising cliche by a guy named John Wanamaker who was a like, big businessman and, and marketer early on in the uh, 20th century. He said this about advertising. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. And we know that, right? We see all these ads. We're like, dude, this is just a waste of money. A absolutely. He, he understood that. Half of my money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. So I just got to throw everything at it, right? Like half the thing, and let's translate this over into failure. There are some things that um, you should fail at that would actually be to your benefit. What are they? I don't know. If I did, I'd be making a lot of money doing a counseling service. You know what I mean? Like that would be, I should do that instead. 
I don't know. All I know is that there are going to be some things, and maybe it's the things that we wrestle with, and maybe our rejection of this is probably because we are so built up with anti-failure, or uh, from a Christian standpoint, we don't trust in a God who has a bigger control of this than we do. Like We're like, we got it. We got it, God. We're like Peter pulling out the sword going, we won't let it die for your sake, right? And he's like, I'm kind of behind some of this. Like, I want this to die in you so that there's a new, that there's a season. I want you to appreciate the seasonality of life so that you can embrace a new thing that I'm doing on and working on in you. Perhaps our prayer should be, God, help me to fail at all the right things. Help me to trust in spite of my failures. Help me to know, to really know that I am not the sum of my failures because failures are inevitable and failures can be beneficial and that my self-worth is tied up entirely in who you say that I am. And so perhaps maybe our prayer is, God, uh, I'm coming to you as a broken person who is going to experience and is currently experiencing a lot of failure, right? Um, Help me to kind of work hard to try and gain wisdom on which ones I should let go and which ones I should fight for. But ultimately, uh, let me realize within the core of my being that I am not the sum of my failures or my successes. And that's the problem too, is like we, uh, a lot of times, especially Americans, we are the sum of our successes. And so we're like, God, whatever you can fit in to kind of help me get those successes up, that would be fantastic, right? And, and that, this, is, this is, has nothing to do with it. God, here I come to you as a broken individual with lots of failures and lots of messes. I want to trust that you'll help guide me in this. Uh, but ultimately, I, I understand that my self-worth is tied up in nothing but what you have to say about me, which is far more of worth um, than what I do. Uh, forgive me for those times where my disordered heart, my disorder has led to disordered loves, where I've treated things that should be like a four in the loveworthiness scale as a seven or eight or a 10 and treated my love for you, which is, should be a 10 as kind of like a two, right? Or a three or a four or even a nine, right? Um, help me to get, live in a rightly ordered life that enjoys the feelings of success when they come and learns from failures and isn't so anti-failure that I don't actually embrace the seasonality of this and the fluctuations of life and the fact that I really don't have a ton of control (laughs) about any of this. And you just call me to do my best and to rely on the fact that you love me enough to send your son to die for me. May we find ourselves blessed, you might say, lucky enough to fail at just the right things. So what happens to you? when you hold on to a season longer than you should? And what does any of this have to do with waiting for the barbarians?